All right, so growing up, uh, I grew up southwest Kansas, and I grew up passionate about football from the University of Kansas State. Kansas State University, K-State, um, this is how bad we were as, as a school. Uh, from, I believe, the 1930s till 1988, statistically, we were the worst football team in Division I. I mean, like, like the, the most losing program. I mean, we were incredibly inept. Uh, but if you've been down to southwest Kansas, like southwest Kansas is one of those places, you know, it's flat, good farmland, um, not like a tourist destination. You know, I mean, if, if you don't have family there, generally you don't go out of your way to go visit southwest Kansas. And so, you know, we, we hang on to some things pretty tightly. K-State football is one of those. So 1988, uh, we had a coach named Bill Snyder came in. Bill Snyder, he's now in the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. Um, and, man, he was, a, he was a great coach. He slowly started turning us around. So uh, 1988 uh, was not a good year. 89 was not a good year. But after that, we started turning around, and we started getting to, you know, first, you know, we'd win a few games a year, which for us, that, that was a big deal. I mean, you know, like if, if you move past one hand counting our wins, that was a good year, you know. And then we started going to bowl games. And then we started, like, cracking into, like, the top 25 rankings. And then we started getting to be, like, pretty decent. But, man, there was this one team that we could not ever beat. And if you know me at all, you know that, there, for me, like, there's animosity. And it's maybe even close to hate, like, in my heart for the University of Nebraska and all things Nebraska. <laughs> and this is how it worked. Every year, no matter how good we were, it didn't matter if – if, like, we were playing at their place up in Lincoln, Nebraska, or if they were in Manhattan, Kansas, like, we were going to get smoked. And uh, even when we were, like, nationally ranked, you know, I mean, Tom Osborne, they'd just run all over us, and, you know, they ran this triple option, and, oh, it, oh, like, we'd get our hopes up every year. And, like, I mean, I remember as, like, a, a 11, 12, 13-year-old, I mean, like, you would circle this day in November, and it was always, it seemed like always kind of middle of November we'd play Nebraska. And, like, we always felt good about ourselves. You know, man, our defense is, you know, pretty good this year. Offense, like, we might be able to do something. And, you know, we'd go and we'd lose, you know, 43 to 3, you know, 65 to, to 7, maybe. And, man, it was, it was depressing. Like, there was, there was no, just no hope. So then, then, I believe it was 1995 came along. And, man, we'd played Nebraska, like, close, like, once in the last 40 years. So, you know, we had a lot of momentum on our side. And, man, we had that game where just things started breaking right. You know I mean? It's one of those, like, where you're, you're, like, you're a fan who's so used to losing to this team that, like, you're, you've just convinced yourself something's going to happen. But, like, we kept hanging with them, hanging with them. And all of a sudden, it's like fourth quarter, we're up a little bit. And it's like, oh, man, we're going to find a way to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And, and then it's like, nope, nope, now we're going to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And then we come around again, it's like, oh, man, maybe. May, and, then, and then we broke through. We won, and, like, we didn't even know what to do. I mean, it had been, like, 40 years. And I, mean, like, I mean, you're so excited, but, like, it's like, how do you celebrate a win? Because, like, nobody was alive who celebrated the last one is, is kind of what it felt like, right? So then the next year, like, that year, man, we lived with hope. Because that year, like, we knew that we could beat Nebraska. And we were pretty good, and most of our guys came back. And again, like, you should not care this much about college football, but we did. And the next year, man, we stuck it to Nebraska. I mean, we didn't just win. We won in convincing fashion. And uh, 
I remember the Sunday after that, because our youth pastor was actually from Nebraska. He was a Nebraska fan. And one of our elders stood up to do announcements. And so he comes up and he does announcements. And all of a sudden, he grabs his shirt and rips it open. And underneath, he has a shirt in K-State purple that just says, oops, we did it again. And those of you who recognize the song from Britney Spears, that was about that time. And he just rips his shirt open during church announcements. And, you know, I can't remember, our youth pastor's over here. And he's like, hey, Jeremy, you see what this says? And, man, and then, uh, you know, we, we didn't win too many more years after that. But those two years were so good. And, man, like, when you know you can beat them, all of a sudden you're living with hope. And then you're celebrating the right things. And I thought about that when I looked at what we're talking about today. So we're during Christmas season. If there's ever a season where we ought to remember that we live with hope because we know the victory not only can be won, but for us we know the victory has been won, and that's right now. I mean, we're looking ahead to the greatest gift the world has ever seen, the birth of Jesus. And man, if we, if we like actually lived like we knew that the victory was ours and we lived with hope. Um, first of all, I don't think ripping our shirts off with oops, we did it again is the, is the right answer. But living with that enthusiasm and that excitement, I think, is a big deal. And, and what we're going to do today is we're going to basically just kind of compare two different women from Scripture uh, who both played a major role in the Christmas story and look at just kind of the mess of the world and then how one lived with hope. So we're going to start way back in Genesis 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip back there. We're going to be in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. But mo- most of us know Genesis 3. That's the chapter that we call the fall. And we remember God created this perfect world. He had this place called the Garden of Eden. He created uh, all these animals, and he said they're good. And then he created Adam. And then he realized Adam wasn't good alone. He needed a helper. And so he created Eve. And so these two made the perfect team. God looked at them and said, it's very good. So these guys were in the perfect world, and there was only, only a couple of rules they had to live by, right? One of them is they better not eat from the tree of knowledge, which was in the center of the garden. So Adam and Eve are out one day, and you know, Eve gets in this conversation with this snake, this serpent, and you know, it's Satan who's you know, inhabited this serpent, and he's like, hey, you know, if you eat of that, you'll actually be as smart as God. And Eve's like, ah, I don't know, and he's like, well, it'll be pretty good. And so she eats it. And then she calls Adam, and Adam comes over, and she's like, hey, you should eat this. And Adam, you know, we, we don't know where he was during that initial conversation, but probably wasn't too far away. And, you know, just kind of short, showed poor leadership all the way through. So he took a bite, and as soon as they do that, all of a sudden they realize, like, it, like that part of the tree was accurate. Like, all of a sudden they realize that, like, they do have knowledge of good and evil, and they chose evil. They chose not obedience to God. At that point, sin came into the world, and now the world's a mess. Um, because like, they realize that like, they've introduced choosing against God into the world, and they have absolutely no way to make it right. I mean, we've all been there, right? Where we've created a mess that we realize we can't clean up. And so they're there, and Adam and Eve, I mean, I imagine the conversation between them was, I mean, filled with shame and embarrassment. But like, so, so we had one thing, like one thing, and we couldn't even do that. And all of a sudden, they hear God walking around because I guess back in those days, God would walk like God would would physically somehow come down and walk around the garden with them. And we know God loves His creation, and so I imagine they just kind of walked around and were admiring the beauty of the Garden of Eden and creation and all that. 
And so God comes down, and Adam and Eve, like, they realize that, like, they've broken something that they had with God. I mean, you know, they've broken that trust that they had with God. And so they go and hide. And God actually has to come out and find them. And, you know, finally, and and they were ashamed, so, you know, they come out. And, and, you know, God says, Adam, what'd you do? And Adam, being the courageous man that he was, you know, threw his wife right under the bus and said, well, it was... It was your fault because you gave me her, and she she did something bad. I'm sorry, I'm pointing at you, Katie. You know, you're 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 just you're our example of Eve, okay? And God's like, well, Adam's like, it's her fault. You gave me her, so really, it's your fault. And God's like, yeah, that that's not gonna work. And so he talks to Eve, and then he's like, you know, they realize Adam and Eve at this point realize that like things are broken, that like they cannot fix it. And then we get to this verse in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. This is what God says. So God deals with Adam and deals with Eve. And we're not going to talk too much, but you can read after this. You know, God deals with Eve and says, hey, there's going to be some, some consequences for your choices. Talks to Adam and says, there's going to be some consequences for your choices. But first, he deals with the serpent. And, uh, and like God, God understands that like people are responsible for their choices. Like, like Satan did not make Eve do something bad. Satan tempted her, but Eve and Adam both made that choice, but, but God decided he would deal with evil first. So he said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All right. So if, if you're filling in blanks on your bulletin, this is the first blank. At this point, the world was a mess. No easy answers and no hope. So Adam and Eve, they're sitting in a world where all of a sudden, like, things are off kilter. Things are not the way that God had originally created them to be. Things were messed up. They didn't have an easy answer. And then we get this verse, and this verse is actually the first of what we call messianic prophecy. That's the next blank. This is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. And we recognize messianic Messiah. And all the way through the Old Testament, there are hints, some of them kind of subtle, some of them pretty direct, where God talks about this Messiah, this, this, this one that God's going to send to make things right. So God's talking to, to Satan here, and he's, you know, part of this judgment is on snakes, but, but most of this judgment is for Satan, where he's like, hey, I'm going to put enmity, like you're going to be enemies with people. And, and at some point, there's going to come a long one, and, and you might bruise his heel, you might wound him a little bit, but he's going to crush your head. And there's just that little glimmer of hope. And I love that because all the way through Scripture, like God never leaves his people without hope. And actually, God never leaves people without hope, even if they're not yet his people. Is that God is a God of hope. God always always, always points to the light at the end of the tunnel. And so Eve here, and, and this is one of the things that I, I kind of wish we knew from Scripture, is we don't see what Eve's reaction is after this. Like, we, we don't see what she does. We don't see if she immediately like turns and like asks for forgiveness and repents. We don't see if like she's bitter and obstinate. Now, honestly, we don't see that from Adam either. Like We don't know how they respond to this. We just see this little snapshot of them messing things up, and then God talks to him, and that, that's all we get to see from them. But the world's a mess at this point, and, and Eve is, I imagine, just kind of this, this broken, holy goodness 
this is a lot of weight to bear, not just knowing that I sin, but knowing like, like the first sin, like that belongs to me. And I imagine that Eve, at that point, hope was pretty hard to come by for her. I mean, she's in a tough situation, right? I mean, she, it's kind of like she had one rule, and she chose to break it. And, that's, and, and we don't want to gloss by that, right? And sometimes, like, sometimes with sin, like, we, we try and kind of laugh it off. Like, yeah, you know, we have a God who's graceful, so, you know, like, that, that's sin, but it's not that big of a deal. You know, I, like, you know, uh, we, we can make it right, I'll ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's a big deal. Eve, Eve was broken by sin. Like, there was a fracture in her relationship with God. And we know that God's big. We know that God fixes that, and, and that's absolutely what we talk about with Christmas. But we don't want to minimize God's rescue in Jesus um, by minimizing sin. Because like the only reason we needed God's Son, the only reason we needed a Savior as big as Jesus, is because sin is as big of an issue as it is. Like sin is something, sin is literally the mess that we can't fix. Like, sin is, is the spill that we cannot clean up. Sin is the, the thing that gets wrong that no matter what we want to do, we can't put right. And Eve, I imagine at this point, even as she's hearing God, like, say, hey, there's hope. I imagine for her that, like, hope wasn't really easy to see. So let's go from her. Let's move forward. I don't even know how many thousands of years. So now... Now we're in, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1. And now we're in this little town of Nazareth. There's this little teenage girl there. And, and as, as best we know, like she's probably in early, like mid-teens, 15, 16. And, you know, it's this little town, a couple hundred people. Everybody knows everybody. And, you know, there's this, this carpenter there, and his name is Joseph. And, you know, he's a good, godly man, has, like, a good reputation. Everybody knows him, thinks highly of him. He's, I don't know, maybe best guess is late 20s or so. Generally, generally men were a little bit older when they got married uh, because, you know, they, they would establish their trade a little bit um, just so that they had a way of providing for their family. And so, uh, you know, best guess, like the way culture set up, this guy Joseph, his family probably talked to this this, this other guy in town who had a daughter named Mary, they said, hey, like, I think Joseph and Mary would be a good match together, so let's have them get married, and so looks good, marries this young girl, small town, and has her future set, uh, because bet just the restrictions, um, the way things were, you know, 2,000 years ago, is uh, if you were a girl, basically your future uh, was either having to work at a trade uh, that no woman should ever have to work at, or you got married. And, I mean, that was your only way to any sort of financial security. And so she's got this godly husband lined up, Joseph, um, you know, looking ahead to kids and, and all of that, basically her, her life's dream. And all of a sudden that all gets messed up uh, when this angel named Gabriel stops by one day. And so he comes up, and he's like, hey, Mary. And Mary's like, hey, um, Hey, and he's like, so, kind of a big deal, you're going to have God's son, um, and, and you're going to give birth to this child, and he's going to be God's son, and he's going to make everything right in the world, and I'm sure Mary at that point is pretty excited, 
Uh, and then shortly after that, starts thinking through details. And all of a sudden, in a world where if you end up pregnant as a girl out of adultery, like if, if you're pregnant but you're not married, um, that could end up in, in you being put to death. Like generally it didn't happen that much anymore, uh, but you could be put to death. You would almost certainly lose your engagement, lose your security, lose your future, um, and be shunned or bring shame to your family and your village. And so all of a sudden, like, Mary gets this incredibly hopeful message from this angel about, hey, God's going to set things right. He's going to do it through you. Uh, but then she's also got to deal with, like, the earthly consequences of that. And I say consequences um, because all of a sudden she realizes she's pregnant and she's engaged to this guy, Joseph, but she's not married yet. And if she shows up pregnant, all of a sudden, like, there's – there's going to be a mess on their hands. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Joseph here in a couple weeks. But Mary is now this young girl who has this promise from God. But she also, at a practical level, has a belly that's starting to grow a little bit in a village where everybody knows everybody. And um, I'm guessing rumors would start fairly easily there. And so she takes off, and she goes to her cousin Elizabeth's town. And this is, I'm just going to read a little bit, Luke 1, 39 through 45. So Mary, uh, she went all the way to her family, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's hub, husband, Zechariah. They actually ended up being the parents of John the Baptist. Elizabeth is six months pregnant. She's an older lady, uh, I think mid-60s. And uh, she'd never been able to have kids, but that same angel had visited Zechariah and said, hey, you guys are going to have a baby. It's going to be John the Baptist. So Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And Mary shows up, and the baby inside Elizabeth does a backflip, gets really excited. And Elizabeth is like, hey, I realize this is of God. And so Mary, uh, so Elizabeth greets Mary and is just like, hey, blessings to you. And then this is what Mary says. And this is, it's called the Magnificat, and it's a song, and it's maybe one of the, one of the best songs in all of Scripture. This is what Mary said. Uh, uh, Luke 1, starting in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary, listen, if anybody had a rough year, and, and I mean, we, we can look and say, yeah, like Mary had an angel appear to her and say, hey, you're going to be carrying the Son of God in you. Um, but for us, looking back, that whole hindsight 2020, I mean, that's a lot easier knowing the end of the story. Like, Mary didn't have the rest of the gospel. Mary didn't have anything, you know, she, she didn't know how the story was going to end up. For her, it's like, well, that's cool, God, but, but right, right now I'm pregnant, and I don't want to be put to death. And I love what Mary does, because Mary had a couple roads. Like, one, Mary could have been like, all right, God, I'm just going to go into hiding and not ever talk to anybody. Or I'm just going to, like, put my head down and just keep plugging forward. And instead, what Mary does 
is Mary praises God. Um, this is your next Blake if you have it. Mary chose to live with hope instead of allowing herself to be controlled by the mess around her. You know, that, that's honestly uh, just a trap I've found myself falling into a little bit, just kind of some side application this year. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, this year has not been the easiest year. Um, and, you know, there have been times this year where, you know, just leading the church, trying to figure out, you know, working with the elders to figure out what it looks like, you know, having church, what does church look like, how do we do stuff, you know, when, when uh, in, in a year where there's a lot of division in our country, a lot of different opinions, we have a global pandemic going on. And, man, there's been times where it's felt like, you know, like whatever we do, we know that there's going to be like a group of folks who disagree with us. And there's been times where, for me, like there's kind of been the, the temptation, you know what, I'm just going to put my head down just kind of keep plugging forward, just kind of try to keep the head above water, and, and that's what we'll do. And I read this, and I read about Mary, and man, I'm, I'm convicted, because I mean, honestly, like, you know, we're, we're pretty blessed. I mean, we live in this amazing place, uh, in the best country in the world, we have an amazing Savior, and I realize that, that sometimes, for me this year, there have been times where I've just kind of thought, you know, I'm just going to keep plugging ahead, and you know, 2021, man, that comes here, and I'm going to be awful excited when it gets here. And I look at Mary, and man, Mary had a tough year going on where Mary, like, if, she, if people found out she was pregnant, and she's not married, I mean, for her, she's looking at the rest of her life being lived out in shame. And yet, because of the hope that she had in God, her response was not, I'm going to put my head down and keep plugging ahead. Her response was, I'm going to sing praises to God and remember what God did. And I read that, and, and for me, like that was, that was a hopeful, but that was also pretty convicting because I was like, well, you know, as a 15-year-old girl in a place like that, you chose to praise God. And, uh, you know, she's much, I'm sure Mary's much nicer than that, but I think if she saw me in my situation, she'd be like, ah, pansy. You know, because, because God calls us to live with hope and praise God. This is the, the next point. Mary remembered what God had done, and that kept her faith strong. All the way through Scripture, what we see is we see people pointing back and saying, I've seen God do this and this and this and this. And that's part of the reason that the Old Testament is so important. Because we remember the way that God has shown up in the past, and if we know that God showed up in the past, a whole lot easier to believe that God is moving right now and God is going to show up in the future. So Mary looks back and, and you know, in there, you know, she has these, these different times where she's like, you know, God's, God has humbled the proud. And, you know, I'm sure she's thinking back to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar where this, the most powerful king in the world is humbled by this, this prophet Daniel, or Daniel, Daniel, who is, uh, you know, God's spokesman. She's thinking of these other times where she's seen God use people from unassuming circumstances and in and, and unimposing places and use that to just shock the world. And Mary, she remembered what God has done and that allowed her to live with hope. This is the next one. If, if we spend enough time magnifying the Lord, we cannot help but live with hope. And, you know, I, I had a, a mentor sometime tell me something like, you know, if we focus enough on the problem in front of us, then that becomes like all-consuming to us. That's the only thing that we notice. But Mary, 
in her song, you didn't hear anything about, I'm pregnant and I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, my village probably hates me, uh, you know. Instead, like Mary focused on God and was like, God is so good, so powerful. God has been so good in the past. And God, because of that, I know that God is working even when I can't see him right now. I think one of the opportunities that we have as believers during this Christmas season, during any Christmas season, but especially this one, is to just magnify the Lord. Because if we, if we not make God big enough, like God's already big enough, but if we remember how, God, how big God is, then like no matter what we're facing, like that shrinks to its appropriate size. Right? Whatever challenge in life I'm facing right now, no matter how bad it is, and, and some of us are facing really serious challenges, whether it be health stuff, job stuff, relational stuff, some of us are facing some pretty good hurdles. But if we remember how big God is, then those shrink down to their appropriate size. And that doesn't mean that they're not hurdles. But when we remember how big God is, I mean, that was Mary's response, and that ought to be our response. This is the way Jesus said it. So Jesus, in John chapter 4, is having a conversation with this Samaritan woman. And, you know, it's, it's this place where he'd stopped for a drink. She shows up, and, and Jesus had asked her for a drink of water. And she said, ah, you know, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You don't really want that. Jesus is like, well, you know, I know a little bit more about you, and it's not just you're a Samaritan, you're also not living a very holy life. And she's like, well, I'll go get my husband. And he's like, ah, see, that's not being honest. You know, you've actually lived with four guys, and the guy you're living with now you're not even married to. And then she starts listening, but he says this to her. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's why we live with hope. Like Mary understood that, but then Jesus said it where he says, hey, like if you follow me, if you have a covenant relationship with me, if, if we fix whatever was fractured by even Adam, if we fix that, then, like, then what I have, think of it as water that never goes bad. Like that wells up to eternal life. This is the next blank. Hope destroys fear because hope removes the unknown. You know, I, I think of those two as kind of opposites. Um, you know, fear is a pretty good motivator for a lot of people. Um, and I, I think the opposite of that is either hope or love. And hope, the hope that we have in God destroys fear because fear is always associated with the unknown. Usually the, the reason there's fear is because we don't know how the story is going to end or we don't know what's going to happen or we just don't know stuff. But hope, we have hope, and hope destroys fear because we know, we know how the story ends. This is the next blank. Hope biblically, biblical hope is more certain than the way we use hope today. So like when I say I hope today, like if I'm talking to Cal and I'm like, hey man, I hope to see you this week. Uh, that really, what, what that means is, you know, Cal, I like you and it would be good to see you this week, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. I may be good if it does, but if it doesn't, it might not. Biblical hope is a little bit different. When we read biblical hope, biblical hope is more saying, hey, I know this is true, and I'm excited to see the fulfillment of it. So um, for me, uh, you know, just, just thinking about, like, see the, like, I am, I, am, uh, I am hopeful of a good Christmas with LJ, 
our little girl. And, and, and by that, I don't mean like, ah, I could go either way. Like, I know whatever happens for Christmas with her is going to be good, and I'm excited to see the fulfillment of that. You know, um, I was, was going to use a sports analogy, but I'm a Cowboys fan and a K-State fan, and there's no hope with either of those. So <laughs> we can't share that. But if, if you have a good team, it's, it's like, you know, if uh, I'm not even a uh, Scott Smith, if he's watching, he's going to love this. Uh, but, you know, if you're an Alabama fan and you're like, I hope this is going to be a good season, like they don't have bad seasons, right? And so it's just that certainty of enjoying the fulfillment of that. And that's what the biblical hope is. And, and for us, I know for me, but I think for us sometimes as Christians, we've switched those two around and, and we view our hope in Jesus as more of, ah, I hope it works out okay, but I don't really know. It could go either way. And I think Mary... Mary lives out biblical hope well because Mary's like, nope, like biblical hope is this certainty of enjoying the fulfillment of what I know is going to happen. You know, I love the way Peter says it. So 1 Peter has this passage about hope. 1 Peter uh, 1, excuse me, 1 Peter 1. This uh, this is the last passage we're going to read today. So Peter is writing, this is Peter who is, you know, good friends with John uh, he was, you know, the one who denied Jesus, but then, but then he came back. Jesus restored him and said, no, get back on the horse, keep riding. And so Peter starts following Jesus. Peter starts leading the church. And towards the end of his life, uh, Peter is probably here within a couple years of being put to death in Rome um, by the emperor Nero. Peter writes this letter to Christians who are just having a hard time hanging on. And uh, he writes it, and this is what he writes in 1 Peter 1. You know, he opens with just kind of the standard greeting. You know, hey, this is Peter. I'm ready to you guys. He says this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Again, don't read that hope like, ah, what's going to happen? Read that as a certain, like, enjoyment of seeing the fulfillment of what we know happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Then he says this, But now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's Mary's story, right? Various trials that's going to end in you praising God. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love that. So he, Peter's writing, and he's like, hey, guys, like, remember our hope. Our hope is in Jesus, and, and, and our hope, this, this, like, getting to see the fulfillment of the resurrection, like, we trust in that. And even though we go through trials, those trials, when we respond with that hope and that praise to God, that leads us to a place where our faith is deeper and richer, and heaven's just going to feel that much more at home. So, I saw a painting, and actually, Lori and I got a card a year ago from someone who sent us this. And this has become one of my favorite paintings, and so I have it up here. But I love this picture. Um, and so we got this, and I just looked for a little while, and I'm, I'm not a huge art person, so I cannot critique the artistic ability at all. 
But I love the picture of, you know, clearly on the one side, you got Eve, and, you know, she is totally tangled up. You know, you see Satan, he's got her all wrapped up. And then on the other side, you have Mary, and, you know, that's a pregnant Mary, and, you know, crushing the head of the serpent. Um, but, you know, Mary just conveying that hope to Eve. And, again, uh, you know, like, pictures are not the same as Scripture, but I'm a picture person, and sometimes I see pictures, and they just kind of help me connect dots. But I think about this picture, and I think about how many of us get stuck living, like, the Eve lifestyle. You know, we're, we're, we're wrapped up by sin or by whatever. And so the last blank I have is this. The, the goal for this week is to live a merry life in an Eve world. Because our, our world is a mess. Like, I, I don't know how you can look at our world and say it's, <laughs> it's not a mess. Because our world is definitely a mess. And I mean, you know, if, if we had, you know, a spare seven or eight hours, we could just make a list of every way that our world's broken that it should be a little bit better. And, and I wish we knew the end of Eve's story. Because we don't really know how we reacted. We just see that snapshot of, of just her as a, a total mess filled with guilt and shame at being naked and being broken before God. And then we see Mary. We see Mary filled with hope. And, and we know that Mary's life was not puppy dogs and unicorns after this, right? Because Mary then, like, raised up in just some of the challenges she faced. You know, I mean, first of all, the pressure of having the Son of God growing up in your home. Um, next, you know, she lost Jesus for three days when he was 12. And, um, you know, I can't imagine how terrifying that was as a mother um, and how embarrassing that was. You know, God, that son you gave me, uh, if you could point me in the right direction, that'd be great. But then, so like we laugh at that one, but then later in her life, when Jesus first started preaching, there was major division in that family, right? Because Mary's other kids thought Jesus was crazy and like this heretic. And so she watched, some of us are in, you know, either have been or are in families that are just divided, where like we have sides fighting and just can't come together. And Mary was like the matriarch of a family that was pretty divided. But then after that, once, once her family started to come back together a little bit, she watched her son die on a cross. And then he came back from the dead, but then he went back up to heaven. And then she got to see her other, one of her other sons, this kid James, uh, take over and, and be one of the leaders of the church and then saw him put to death for leading the church and for being a Christian. You know, Mary didn't have an easy life, but Mary lived with hope. And I think that's something that every one of us needs to have that reminder of fairly often. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, like that's, that's a reminder that I need, uh, maybe not especially this year, but, but certainly during this year. So what does it look like to live with hope? These are just a few of the things that, that I wrote down. One, it means that our motivation is the same thing that motivated Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, the, the two most important things, the two things that motivated him were love for God and love for people. And so as we're talking about, like, why, why we live, like, we, if, we, if we truly believe that we're living with hope, then the two things that better factor every decision we make in and the way we live is love for God and love for people. Another thing it means, living by hope, means that we live knowing that God is in control. 
and, and knowing like in a biblical sense, not like hoping, like, hey, God, I, I, hope, you're, I hope you're driving the ship. But rather, we know, and we, we just studied Revelation. I mean, we, we know the end of the story. Uh, but if I know that God is going to make everything right in the end, then I'm okay with whatever curveballs come along, right? I mean, I better live my life loving God and loving people, uh, but, I, but I know, like, God's going to set things right. And anything between now and then is really, is, is really just either a, a speed bump or a hurdle or an opportunity for Him to show who He is as He is making things right, right? Because, because God is using the church right now using believers all over the world to make things right in the world up until the time where God says, okay, now I'm going to come through and do this one last time and we're going to make things right. Uh, another thing it means is means that we live by the word of God. Like if, if we have hope, like if we have hope the way that Mary did, then one of the things that comes with that is that we set things right. Um, we, we, can't, we can't be hopeful in God and also choosing not to live by God's law. Like, we can't say, okay, God, I have hope that you're going to save me, and I'm also going to live however I want. Rather, rather, what it means is I have hope, God. I know that you're going to bring this about, and I know because you're going to set things right, because you're going to bring about your kingdom, then I am going to do my part of the covenant. Another thing it means... It means that we live by prioritizing the things of Jesus. And again, Jesus made people really, really important to him. In fact, the only thing more important to people, more important than people to Jesus, was God. Right? And Jesus first followed God, and then he took care of people. Um, I, the last thing I wrote is that it means we live for things and not just against things. Now, one of the things that Jesus did is Jesus was always proactive and not reactive. And, um, man, one of the things that Jesus did is Jesus always changed people. Like, Jesus never, never compromised truth, right? Jesus never called things okay that weren't okay. But Jesus didn't really, Jesus didn't, didn't stand against things as much as he stood for God's law. And that's just a minor distinction but I think when we're proactively living, knowing that God is using us to make the world right, then our attitude becomes one that we're for stuff and not just against things. And, and I think the way that we see that lived out, especially as followers of Jesus, is then we're, we're proactively choosing to make a difference in people's lives and not just saying, hey, you're, you're wrong or that's wrong or don't do that. And, and we don't become the behavior police, but rather we become people that build relationships with people that aren't afraid to say, no, God's word says this, and so we got to draw a line here. But, but if we start with being proactive and building a relationship, then that whole conversation about drawing a line and saying, hey, no, this is wrong and we're not going to go past that becomes a lot easier than if we start with the line. Couple questions that, that I want to ask is just this: Where is your hope at? Because th this whole conversation about Christmas, about pointing the best gift ever, um, it's it's not even worth having if that's not Jesus. 
because really like having certainty and enjoying the fulfillment of something that's true and eternal well there's only one thing that's true and eternal and so when I ask you when your hope is where is your hope at I mean I have a lot of really great things in my life I mean I look around here and I have a, a lot of really great friends in this room that I'm blessed by their friendship and uh my hope's not in that. I mean, I, I enjoy it, and I'm so glad we're friends, and you guys point me closer to Jesus. I hope I get to do the same thing for you guys. That's not my hope. You know, I have a beautiful wife over here, an amazing daughter. My hope's not in them or in our relationship, although I'm so glad for that, and Lori points me more towards Jesus. At the end of the day, my hope is in Jesus because he is my spring of living water. And Christmas, that, that time where we talk about the greatest gift ever. If that doesn't begin with Jesus, then we can't even go past that. So where's your hope at? And if you're here today, and you're saying, you know what, I, you know, I don't really know. I'm just kind of making it up as I go. Now let's fix that today. Don't leave today without talking to somebody about Jesus. Because Christmas, you know, this highly commercialized holiday, really, like, at its core is a holiday about hope. And, man, let's share, let's share where the hope should be at. So that's, that's the first question. The second question, I, I know most of us, we know where our hope is. So then are we living more like Eve or Mary? And if I'm honest, as I look at myself over the last several months, I don't really like the answer that I have to give because I spent a lot of days kind of living an Eve life when I could be living a merry life in an Eve world. When I think about living with hope, man, there's, there's too many times where I'm just, just kind of putting my head down and just plugging away at life and just, you know, get, you know, get another step ahead, get the things I need to today done. Um, but I read Mary and, and I look at the way Mary magnifies the Lord and I ask myself, when was the last time I magnified the Lord? And, man, uh, I can tell you, it was this week because I started working on the sermon. You know, and I read this, and I was like, well, I better be able to tell someone when I magnified the Lord last. But it is too easy for me to not magnify the Lord, to not live with hope. And, and here's the deal, like, if, if I don't live with hope, it's not like my salvation's gone. It's not like I, I still don't have eternity with Jesus. But, but then it, it gets kind of lonely because I'm not sharing that with anybody. And we have an opportunity as the people who have received the greatest gift that's ever been given in the history of the world. Now let's share that with people this season. So let's live with hope this season. Uh, for me, one little way I'm doing that, and I shared this with my, uh, my group Wednesday night. One of the things that I'm trying to do just to... Uh, just to live a hopeful life and share hope is just really genuinely encourage people. You know, like really just compliment people when I see them doing godly things. Uh, I realize for me that, that like sometimes I'll throw out just kind of comments where I'm like, hey, that was really good. I'm glad you did that. Or, hey, great job with that. But like to actually stop and just build somebody up and kind of share a kingdom celebration with them, uh, that's something that I realize that I don't do very much. And that's one way that this year I'm hoping to just live with hope is by magnifying God, but celebrating where I see that in the lives of others. 
That's one of the reasons why getting together as a church body is so important. So let's live this season as people of hope because we are people of hope. Uh, let me pray for us after this. Uh, we're going to have Mike Getman's going to come up, lead us through communion. Uh, that time where, again, we remember the hope that we have for certainty in Jesus. So let me pray for us. If you're here today and you want to talk about finding your hope in Jesus or you want to talk about what it looks like to live with hope, and we have so many godly women, godly men here who do that well, and I'd love to just connect you with one of them. So if you stay in your seats or make your way up by the drum set, our new drum set here, uh, you know, we'd love to get you with someone who can pray with you and talk with you about what that looks like. So let's pray, and we'll have Mike come up. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for looking down and seeing a world that was lost, um, seeing a, a bunch of eaves who were broken, and just had our relationship with you fractured. Thank you for deciding that we were worth you coming down and dying so that we could have life. Um, Jesus, I pray that, that First Christian is um, that we would be people this season who live with hope, who live with a contagious hope because we know the end of the story. We know with certainty that you raised from the dead and that right now you're preparing a place for us and as we celebrate you coming into the world, that we would share that well with people. I pray that we would be people who, who wouldn't compromise you or your word. But Jesus, that, that we would be these imperfect, fractured people who made whole. We would remind each other well of that deceit. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.